Welcome to episode 348 of the Cyberlaw Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. We're lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government. And the views we're about to express today do not reflect those of our institutions, our firms, our clients, our family members, our pets, or maybe even our own three weeks from today. I'm going to be interviewing David Chris, who is a longtime participant in the podcast, founder of Culper Partners, uh, and he's going to be doing the news roundup with us too, but I'll be interviewing him about the National Security Agency's SIGINT Annex, which he has written the, what I think it's fair to say, David, is the the complete and definitive review of the SIGINT Annex, because nobody's going to be crazy enough to try to do it after you did it. You're very polite, Stuart, the way you put that. Yes. I think in terms of sheer length, at least, there'll be no other efforts in this of this sort. All right. I, and then joining us also on the News Roundup, we have Gus Hurwitz back at last. Uh, he teaches law at the University of Nebraska. And Gus, it's good to have you. It's been a while, but I'm uh, thrilled to finally be back. It's terrific. Uh, also joining us, Bruce Schneier, uh, technologist, privacy and security guru. Bruce, good to have you. Nice to be here. And remember, I'm not an attorney. Yeah, that's true. I, I, you know, we, we have that tagline on the beginning, and it's increasingly questionable. Uh, sometimes the lawyers don't even make up the majority of the panels. I, I'll have to rethink that. We started as lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government, and then we realized we didn't know what we were talking about. So we're so tech- we now technologists like talking about lawyers. Excellent. There you go. <laughs> well, <laughs> fair enough. <laughs> I thought you were going to say it's debatable whether or not we lawyers should be. <laughs> well, there's that too. <laughs> okay, and I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA and DHS, and the host of today's pro- program. Uh, let's jump right in. Bruce, uh, the Canadian Privacy Commission has uh, slapped Clearview AI upside the head for collecting, by scraping, billions of pictures of people that they are then using to sell back to Canadian law enforcement as well as law enforcement around the world. What do you make of the Privacy Commission's judgment? I think it's interesting. Canada has different privacy laws than the U.S. does, and it seems pretty clear that uh, Clearview violated Canadian law by scraping these public images without the the people's consent, knowledge or consent, and and, and that's the issue. So it looks like they're right. I mean, they haven't slapped them aside that yes, they've just now told them they need to stop doing it. They can't make Clearview delete the photos because Clearview is an American company and you lawyers can talk about that. But I mean, it is nice to see Canadian privacy law being applied to Canadians. I thought I'm sure Canadians would be happy. And it's kind of I mean, it's kind of nice to see, right? This is this is what the law is. It's the world isn't the US. Other countries have different laws and that's okay. It's a big planet. So the the Canada's law is a lot like European law. I am struck by two things. One, everybody is doing what Clearview AI did. There, there was another article, I think, in Wired that said basically since people started collecting these photos in the wild in order to get the, the vast quantities that you'd need to do machine learning on faces, uh, everybody has just been saying, well, I guess I'll have to scrape it because that's the only way to get it. And what the Canadians said is, oh, well, no, you, you need consent. And Clearview said, yeah, we got consent. When you put your photo in public, 
Just like when you walk around in public, everybody can see you. That is consent to be seen. And the commission said, oh, no, no. If it's sensitive data, you have to get express consent. So you need to go back to all these people and ask them for that, which strikes me as the death, if they really meant it, of photo search on Google. Uh, There's a whole bunch of stuff that is suddenly legally dubious. And that maybe that's a good thing. Things are legally dubious. I mean, the everybody doing it. I mean, this is again. I want to talk to you lawyers, but I'm not convinced that when I get hauled into court for drunk driving, when I say, "Well, look, everybody's doing it," they let me off, right? I mean, I don't know if that defense works, but I'd like it not to. I mean, you're right. We have to figure out how to do AI without breaking the law. That feels like a good thing to figure out. It's not the death of photo search. It's the death of your photos being used without your knowledge and consent for other people's business. And we as society can decide that. The Canadians can. The U.S. can say too bad, right? Nothing you can do. The Chinese can say something else. But if the Canadian law does say that, good for them for enforcing it. Yeah, but the, you know, the, the uh, Facebook works the same way in Canada as in the United States. The internet works the same way. Uh, when somebody says, we've suddenly discovered that everything people are doing is illegal under Canadian law, you might say, well, how is it that we didn't notice this before? I, I think this is, this is a case of a, an unpopular actor getting slammed with privacy violations where a more popular actor, somebody who seemed to be doing something a little less uh, toxic, would have gotten away with it. And, well, and this is my beef with privacy law. Sure. And, is and that that's is, true. Everything is illegal. And that's certainly true in the United States. If you are popular, if you are rich, you can commit many more crimes than if you're unpopular and poor. So yes, you yeah. have that problem. It's a problem. I'm not happy with it. But, but yes, you're right. Unpopular, poor, disenfranchised, pretty much all crimes fall onto them disproportionately. Yeah. Yep. People of color and conservatives, they're going to end up hurt. hurt and Clearview. <laughs> and Clearview. Well, they, they're, they're, they're very tied to the right, apparently, uh, from some of their uh, investors. And that is probably what is griping Canadians more than anything. All right. Uh, speaking of government getting on people's case, the newly unpopular VCs of Silicon Valley are getting a taste of syphilis. David, uh, this is this is the kind of relentless working out of a story that probably began in 2017 or 18. Yeah. So the the headline of this story, government SWAT team is reviewing past startup deals tied to Chinese investors is a little I guess what the British would call sexed up, but the basic point I think is worth noting, and that is that, you know, the Cepheus Eye of Sauron can turn upon you without warning, and it can go back in time. And even if you, you know, consummated a deal years ago, Cepheus gives the government very, very broad authority to potentially unwind investments or other transactions from the past, which gives the government an enormous amount of leverage. Um, And I have seen actually this in a couple of actual cases where, you know, a a deal that was long thought done and closed is suddenly brought back and brought back into question. And, you know, I think this is going to continue. The, The Biden administration, broadly speaking, I think is going to be as tough 
as the Trump administration on China economic issues, but probably more coherent and organized and efficient in sending CFIUS SWAT teams out. So this is something that folks are going to have to pay attention to, even if they are thought it was long behind them in the rearview mirror, and they're going to have to reassess the calculus of voluntary self-reporting under CFIUS, which you can do at the front end, versus you know hoping that uh, the eye of Sauron never falls upon you. So I think it's just an interesting warning, and, and VCs and others are going to have to pay attention and, and actually maybe do some audits of their prior investments and other activities from the yeah, past. Yeah, you know, if, if, if you had to pick the two professions most likely to think that they were just so smart that everybody else would not realize what they were up to, it would have been the people who structure deals and the the VCs who do technology. Yeah. And so I'm quite confident that they were overconfident that Sifius just would never understand, never figure it out, etc. And the government really as a result of Senator Cornyn's efforts to get a new CFIUS bill adopted after hearing from DOD on it, has set up the staffing and the authority to undo a lot of deals. And so I think a lot of these people who just thought they were too smart for the government are going to regret it. Uh, it also does mean CFIUS and the Treasury Department are going to be spending a lot of time on $500,000 investments, which is you know, <laughs> hard, to, hard to see it scaling. You know, that may be true. Hopefully, if they do that, they'll have some kind of a set of templates to resolve these things quickly, and the market will sort of adjust and adapt to it. But I, I think you're right. And, I, you know, the interesting thing from a government policy perspective and from a private se sector perspective is that sort of the combination of new authorities and new energy and real strong emphasis from the top on pushing something can really upend sort of implicit expectations that have settled in. So it's, it's just a warning for people who operate in highly regulated industries where enforcement hasn't been as aggressive as it might be, that at any moment, the needle can move and you become the poster child for the new program of aggressive enforcement. This worth thinking yeah, about. Yeah, as Clearview AI is discovering as well. <laughs> <laughs> well, exactly, right. All right, well, who else is up for a grilling? Uh, Gus, it looks like Amy Klobuchar is still running for Attorney General. Uh, she's got a host of candidates for for, uh, new scrutiny from the government. Yeah, so last week she released a, a bill on antitrust reform and she was one of the uh, three co-sponsors on, I, I guess uh, she was one of the two co-sponsors with Senator Mark Warner on the Safe Tech Let's Nuke Section 230 bill. These are both pieces of legislation that in some ways seem deceptively simple and purport to do small burden procedural shifting things, potentially with really a dramatic effect. So the uh, antitrust bill, it does two big things and then a whole bunch of small things that really seem to be saying the law means what we all already know that means. But the two big things are it uh, bars exclusionary conduct that presents a, quote, appreciable risk of harming competition. This sounds like a law term, legal terminology, but appreciable risk, who knows what that means? It means nothing. And it uh, shifts the burden uh, of proof for large transactions, large mergers. Uh, I think the thresholds are either firms above a billion dollars buying another uh, company or deals above $5 billion. The merging parties will need to prove that they are in the public, that they're good for competition. 
as opposed to the traditional understanding that the government bears the burden of demonstrating they could harm competition. So the, the real effect of this, presumptively large contracts are illegal. That, that's basically what uh, this is, uh, uh, shifting the burden of in commerce for large deals. And the, the potential effects are really quite dramatic. Two examples just in the last couple of uh, days, or one example and uh, an important piece of discussion. Walmart, I think the same day that this bill was announced, announced that they were going to buy an ad tech company so that they could compete better with Amazon. Well, that deal is going to fall or would fall under these thresholds. So that deal, which is intended to allow Walmart to more effectively compete against Amazon, a good thing, is presumptively illegal. So ah, this, there's a lock-in effect for the people who already have their scale. So you, we've got some of uh, that going on. And it's just, it's a very wide net. So that, that's one thing that uh, could be or should be on the a screen here. Another, this will lead to a complete recalibration if it becomes law of the venture capital and startup economy because it would kill the acquihire startup strategy. The uh, exit strategy for venture capitalists of your company will be acquired by one of these tech titans, that's suddenly off the table. Um, Is it off the table? I mean, these, those deals are not necessarily all that big when they're made because the, 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 the acquihire uh, company is pretty small. But if they're getting acquired by one of the big companies, okay. then it, the, the new standards would be triggered. So basically, you're, you're no longer allowed to have Google as your exit strategy. It could still be an acquisition through consolidation with other smaller firms, but it, it would dramatically reshape the venture capital exit strategy proposition. I, I think that, that's, a, that's a major consideration because my sense is that uh, exit now is almost always exit into the arms of somebody bigger. It, uh, IPOs are not that much fun anymore. And so it, it the, there's a lot of effort to say we just want to have this be the slickest acquired feature that uh, that Google or Facebook goes to buy this year. Yeah, and it's in, it's entirely possible that some of these deals are the large companies buying up competitors or potential competitors before they become competitors, which could be anti-competitive. That has to be on the table as a reality. And uh, the enforcement agencies are aware of that. Riffing on the IPOs aren't much fun. I, I With Bezos stepping up from Amazon, I guess, he's not stepping out or down, but changing positions. I've been seeing discussion that uh, Zuckerberg might be thinking about his exit strategy from Facebook in another year or two because it's not fun to be running these companies anymore. That entire Wild West ethos of big tech and allure is definitely uh, in the past. Yeah, and we also know that uh, big, wealthy CEOs have a second career as supervillains. <laughs> There is some of that. You're right, and and I, and I have to say, Bezos uh, is is he's looking pretty ripped. You know, he he right. could go Plus shirtless. Right, space program. He probably has orbital <laughs> lasers. You know, <laughs> well, Elon Musk and Bezos—they're both building their space programs and their global internet satellite services. I mean, this is the global tech villain archetype. And we've, we've got competition between them, so that's great if you're antitrust competition in the markets kind of guy. So I'm Which one of them is responsible for the California forest exactly, fires? Exactly, exactly. reliable sources telling us that something in that department was going on, so I'd like you to get to the I, bottom I have of to that. say, I'm afraid poor, poor Zuckerberg. Uh, 
you know, when you're asking which supervillain Elon Musk could be, you don't ha you have a lot of choices. And uh, the same with Bezos. I I think Zuckerberg uh, gets the award for most likely to end up as Peter Parker. <laughs> Peter Parker or uh, Mini Me. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> All right. Uh, what about two thirty? So 230, the, the Safe Tech Act, this is a weird bill. It would kill Section 230. Whether you're a, a fan of that or not, I leave to the listener or you, Stuart. But this is where it, it's, it's going gonna, it's gonna to dump a whole bunch of exceptions into 230, saying you don't get this if you're engaged in antitrust violations. You don't get this if you're engaged in human rights violations, et cetera, right? So a whole bunch of exceptions, yes. But the, the weirder thing and the bigger thing that it does um, is it shifts around the burdens. So it says uh, Section 230C1, the arguably the mo more important of the two provisions, is an affirmative defense. So you can be sued if you're one of the platforms and you need to go to court and say, yeah, we did it, but Section 230C1 offers us an affirmative defense well, so that this takes is, us out this liability. This is not a problem for YouTube. They, can, they, they, they got hot and cold running lawyers. They can, they, they can go into court and make their affirmative defense, can't they? So that, that's the, exactly what the fight is. And most people don't understand what the current fight between the Section 230, strong Section 230 proponents um, and the Section 230 reformers are. It goes back to a, a famous uh, a phrase, uh, death by a thousand duck bites. The idea that uh, if we open up the doors of liability, the big companies are going to be uh, faced with thousands or millions of lawsuits. And even more important, the small companies are going to be uh, faced with hundreds or thousands of lawsuits, which will drain their coffers into the pockets of we lawyers. I personally think that that concern is overstated by the Section 230 strong proponents, but it is a legitimate concern, especially for the smaller companies. And on the other side of that fight, we've got the idea that we can just make small tweaks to the law without fundamentally changing it. And no, this basically, if your concern is litigation, this basically opens the floodgates to litigation. Um, and All it's right. just still- but we're, not, we're, we're, we're not gonna, we're not gonna resolve it. Uh, I do no. think though that Amy Klobuchar, Senator Klobuchar, hitting big tech over and over again with a left and a right and another, I, it really, she deserves to be Dr. Octopus. Oh, we, we're, we're developing our own cinematic universe now. I think so. I think um, so. Well, uh, that, that always opens the question of who would I be, and I don't want to Stuart, think are you Uncle that. Ben? <laughs> That's it. That's it. I will, be, I will lay my body down here, and, and then you can all go out and vindicate and uh, get revenge uh, for the harm that was done to me. Uh, all right. Let's, we're back to solar winds. God bless them. Uh, I, Bruce, you had a piece on uh, solar winds suggesting that maybe it's more fair than we think to be calling this uh, SVR hack the solar winds hack. God, it's hard to know, right? This, this, this seems to be a massive operation. Right now, we think that about a third of those infected in this operation are not affected via solar winds. There is a uh, vector involving uh, Microsoft Office 360. There's a vector involving password spraying, which if you don't know that term, that means instead of guessing your password again and again and again, I guess everybody's password once with, basically I use the obvious passwords with everybody hoping to get someone. Now, you know, we know SolarWinds has lousy security. There's, we read about a, that China 
found another vulnerability in SolarWinds, was using that completely independently from what Russia was doing. Article that's in when the, you, That's well, when you start to feel embarrassed, when well, everybody yeah, but, thinks you're easy. Article in the Washington Post that uh, someone was in their email network for months. It, it's a big deal. What I'm really thinking about is how the, the private equity market has, has in some ways caused this. Right? SolarWinds is owned by Tama Brava, which is a private equity firm run by a Brazilian billionaire. And the model is to cut costs as much as possible, provide a mediocre product, uh, find places where customers are locked in and don't switch. And over the years, SolarWinds has underspent on security. There are a bunch of articles about that, about their practices. And it's effectively, and Matt Stoller made this point, SolarWinds made money by putting American nuclear research facilities at risk, right? They put they they increase the risk and push it onto their government customers without their knowledge or con- consent. I I hear you on that, but I think the problem's bigger than that. The problem the is problem bigger, I, and and I want it, procurement. It, I mean, I want really good procurement rules. And, so and, here's the here's why it made sense for P a PE firm to do that. SolarWinds is probably on the way to dying. Software uh, goes through a cycle. It's really cool. People start adopting it. Suddenly, the amount of money you put into developing it is dwarfed by the number of people who want to buy it. And you can you can invest, and you're making money hand over fist, and investing in new features and new capabilities, and you can pay for the security. And then it hits a peak, and then you can see, well, it's it's not going to grow. We might as well milk the long tail. And at that point, from a PE point of view, a, a private equity point of view, milking it means cutting costs. But everybody's going to do that, even if they're not PE. They're going to say, "I've gotten as I've done as much to this program as I really can, and I just need to nurse as much money out of it as possible as it declines." And that is, I, I, we're going to see that security problem crop up every time software goes through that cycle. And that's right. So, so here we have a here we have a, a sort of a, a mismatch between what our business economic system wants and national security, because now national security suffers because of what you said. That's the way things work. I want to see the U.S. government have real procurement standards and security, almost like they have it in medical devices. So the government has standards on software, on software development, on the processes of the place. If you want to sell it to the U.S. government, you need to be at least this secure. Because it matters. It matters for real reasons. And the neat thing is if the government could do that, then have a list of approved vendors, then everybody else could use that list. So if SolarWinds wants to continue to sell into the U.S. government, they need to spend that money. If they don't, they don't. I'm not sure any other way to fix this. Everything is connected. I mean, who heard of SolarWinds? And now they're suddenly everywhere? everywhere. (laughs) Yes. Or at least the SVR is. And it's going to be years, if not decades, to get them out. You have to burn so those to networks be, to the ground. Absolutely. It, it, you know, it used to be people would say, oh, well, you know, you can't regulate the, the goose that lays the golden egg. The tech can't be regulated because the, it, it won't work. Boy, that argument is kind of over. Uh, and from Australia to the tax negotiations, uh, if you say, well, this might be bad for big tech, people say, okay, so is there any other reason to do it? Uh, yeah, so... Uh, 
This discussion about Australia's Google Facebook regulations and the global tax discussion, it's great because we can tie together some of the stuff that we've already been discussing. Bruce started this off today saying, look, we're, we're in a world of global laws, global countries. We, we're going to have competing stuff going on. And David started us off with a reference to uh, the Lord of the Rings. So I'm going to make a reference to The Hobbit. What we're uh, really seeing is stories about people trying to steal the dragon's gold. The, the big tech companies have all this money, all these resources, and everyone wants a piece of it. So uh, Australia has been talking for a while about, hey, Google and Facebook, uh, their ad-based business model has decimated uh, local media. What are we going to do about that? And they've been uh, talking about and they proposed this uh, law where Google and Facebook would need to pay uh, publishers for news stories that they link to, basically. And Microsoft has come in and said, yeah, that's great. We would be very happy uh, for you to to take our competitors' money. And if we were to somehow run afoul of this law, yeah, we'd, we'd participate too. So we've got the Australian government trying to expatriate money from American firms' coffers. We've got Microsoft saying, hey, this is great. It's going to harm some of our competitors in the digital space. We've got Australian publishers saying, yeah, this is going to save our business model that uh, won't require us to rethink this. And then we can add in the tech tax discussion. So Janet Yellen this past week, said, yeah, the U.S. is on board with talking about some standardized approach globally to taxing the big tech firms. Several European countries have been talking about this and actually have been doing it for uh, a while. And there are all sorts of different approaches. And Yellen saying, yeah, we're, the United States is on board with these discussions. I don't know what she's actually thinking, but it's led to a sudden, yes, we are as a world going to find a way to tax these companies. I don't know if that's actually the goal or the purpose. On, yeah, uh, exactly. On yeah, they could use the money, but really, it's it's just the, to to cause the the, the screams. Uh, I, yeah, yeah. it is a good question. Uh, but all the governments need the money after uh, what we went through and are going through with COVID. Uh, yeah, um, and it's kind of like uh, the same thing with Section Two Thirty. You've got the right saying we have to reform it. You've got the left saying we have to reform it. Obviously, we're going to reform it. No, they want to do completely different things for completely different reasons. So maybe Yellen saying, yeah, we're on board with some great big EU and OECD discussion about how to tax these companies. It's a brilliant stratagem to bring everyone into a room to disagree together where nothing will ever get done instead of these one-off countries uh, doing uh, their own independent things. So maybe those people who've been complaining that big tech is causing divisiveness uh, among Americans uh, have struck on their entire strategy for avoiding regulation. As long as we're so mad at the guys on the to the left or the right of us that uh, we can't agree with them, uh, big tech just coasts. Uh, that could be the answer. I think that's <laughs> Facebook's model. I think it has been. Right? Engage the government, please regulate us, and then stand back because the government has no idea how to do it. All right. Well, I, one more regulatory debate going on in India where Twitter, which is notorious, at least among the people I hang out with, for censoring everybody and his brother, is facing complaints from India that uh, despite a government order to take down certain accounts, Twitter didn't do it because they thought the First Amendment or free speech values required them to let those uh, folks, I think that was a farmer's protest, continue to speak. And uh, David, I, this is just a complete flip of the usual script, isn't it? 
Well, in your narrative, yes. <laughs> I mean, I think it, it, it does highlight sort of an area of screwiness and difficulty in international legal standards around the question of content moderation. And it, it sort of reminds me of the, the debate that's only sort of partly dealt with around access to data internationally. You have companies or providers who are potentially caught between conflicting obligations. On the one hand, sort of in the data access setting, you have blocking statutes like the U.S. had uh, under ECPA that would prevent access to content. And then you have other countries demanding access to that same content. And, you know, the, you can feel a little bit for the companies who are stuck in the middle of that set of conflicting obligations. And here you have potentially the same kind of thing going on with some companies demanding that certain content or certain accounts be blocked or taken down and others at least supporting, if not mandating, that they be kept up. So and I'm confused. We've got to square that there, circle. There's, there's nobody telling Twitter that they have to leave these up except Twitter. The, the government of well, India said take it down, and Twitter said, oh, we answer to a higher law. The, I mean, there are certain international agreements that at least support the principle of protecting free speech. But you're right. I don't think there's quite as strong a set of mandates yet, although I wouldn't I wouldn't rule that out over time. And you're right. They are responding to their belief that free speech is important. And that's part of being a U.S. company and coming out of the U.S. tradition. And so the question just arises, like, to what extent can India force a takedown? Can it do it in India? Can it do it worldwide? You know, can they do what Zoom experienced in China? with infiltration of the company's own account management or content management folks with, you know, basically influence from the government. It's, it's a bit of a messy environment, and I don't think we have come anywhere close to rationalizing how we're going to do this. Companies are trying various strategies to outsource the problem, whether it's to, uh, you know, privately created Supreme Courts or whether it's to the government, one government or multiple governments. We haven't yet square the circle of how this, to how to this isn't this. hard obey the damn law and you're you're fine <laughs> right I, it's it's their insistence that their judgment should trump the indian government's judgment that has them in a pickle and if they obeyed the law they they wouldn't have somebody telling them they're they're acting unlawfully and and if somebody said this is unlawful they could go to court and ask whether the government's order is unlawful why weren't you this differential to the canadian government in the first story <laughs> exactly exactly <laughs> exactly and if it were the eu instead of india oh, well, story, I, th I think you'd be singing a different tune and in fact i think i've heard you sing a different tune I, I, about about worldwide injunctions from EU courts, <laughs> but this is this is this is a local dispute. These are these are Indians tweeting about Indian. Right, but uh, you issues. know that Twitter, like everything else, is global. Indians tweeting about Indian politics, you could read, okay. you can follow, and it's an American company. Yeah. It's a mess, you, and you're right. Okay. Dealing with All right. sovereignty I, is hard. You, Bruce. <laughs> I, it is true that Twitter uh, lost any claim on being the free speech wing of the free speech party with me about 400 conservative deplatformings ago. All right, uh, but let, let me let me ask another, now that we're back in the good old days, blockchain. 
IBM is, there's a story in the Wall Street Journal, I think, saying that IBM has laid off most of its blockchain workers and isn't really investing in blockchain. And that, I, I wondered if that meant we were at a kind of point of punctuation on blockchain. And I know, Bruce, you've worked with IBM and they are an unusual tech company. They do a lot of the work themselves because they're smart enough to do it. And they make a lot of money from showing other people how to do stuff that they've learned to do. And they thought, I'm sure blockchain would be one of those things where they could learn it and then show a lot of people how to do it. Is it over for blockchain? I sure hope so. And a lot of people know that I had a company that IBM purchased. So I was an IBM employee for two years. It's kind of a wacky experience because you're right. They are this, this huge behemoth with enormous number of scientists. And back a few years ago, blockchain was one of the things that was going to change the world. Then CEO Ginny Ramonetti would talk about how it would be as revolutionary as the web. I mean, it was nonsense then. It made no sense. It was dumb. They put an enormous amount of effort in blockchain and no surprise, nobody cares except a bunch of tech bros who are you know want to make money not being regulated by other currencies and there's, there's no value in blockchain and it seems like quietly they have sort of dismantled all of that so i'm kind of pleased to see it right on the other hand quantum computing which is another bet they've done they're making some huge breakthroughs and that's going to change the world like computers do so when IBM gets it right, they do great. When they get it wrong, they kind of just quietly sulk off. Well, it's, uh, God bless them for, for recognizing it and having internal uh, political and financial disciplines that, and, that get them out of stuff. And for having the scientists do the research. I mean, getting original science in a corporate world is, is increasingly rare. So, yep. I mean, IBM is, is a great company. I had fun there. All right. Nicole Perlroth has a an article on how the United States was lost to hackers. Uh, it is really a summary of her book. They tell me this is how the world ends. And we're going to have her on the, to interview us uh, next week, I think, or the week after. But Bruce Gus, I thought I'd give you a shot at giving a review to the basic theme, which is that privatized hacking is a disaster for the world and needs, well, something. I would say hacking is a disaster for the world. That, that the notion that everything is insecure and offense wins is dangerous and is increasingly dangerous as computers start affecting the world in a direct physical manner. The real worry of solar winds, sure, it's getting into the DOE computers and reading emails, but it's getting into power plants and potentially causing blackouts. That's the real worry. I think her essay is great. I recommend it to, to everybody listening. I ordered the book. It should show up next week. So I'm excited to read it. She's a great writer. And I think she has a bunch of good stories to tell of the danger of an offense-dominant strategy in the world. So my uh, only uh, quibble with that is I'm not so much worried about shutting off electrical grids and stuff like that as when everyone's in everyone else's system, with electrical grids, you know something's happened. I'm more worried about the hard to detect, lower the efficiency of the electrical grid by uh, uh, 13% over a period of uh, multiple years or lower uh, crop yields over a, a period of multiple years, destroy commodity markets in a way that no one will uh, detect until it's too late. That, that's the kind of stuff, the slow incremental over a period of years that really scares me. The, the only thing that I wonder about this is what's the alternative 
I mean, I, I've been joking for years, uh, big fan of uh, Dune, Frank Herbert. Are, are we approaching, are we on the cusp of our Butlerian Jihad, where we're going to turn against the machines and say that, that we can't make them, we don't know how to make them secure enough. It's not about defense because someone's going to be offensive is the only way to uh, win the game, not to play. And I, I don't think that that's the answer, but I, I can see a world where uh, those who don't play are the winners. So let me offer another, I, I think, equally depressing version of this. The way to get cybersecurity increasingly, it's clear, is to monitor what's happening inside your network, not try to keep people out of the network and, and identify every piece of unusual behavior and inspect it to make sure it's not malicious. That used to be something you couldn't imagine doing on the internet. But as the internet increasingly becomes uh, the private property of four big companies or eight, whatever you want, it becomes more possible. So it, instead of fighting the machines in a, a guerrilla action, maybe the, uh, the superheroes and supervillains of big tech will end up providing the security by punishing the outliers. I fear that will include the entire Republican Party, but... Totally uh, deserving, <laughs> but okay. <laughs> uh, as long as the law firm of Steptoe and Johnson is protected against retaliation, all well. Well, and, 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 and their lawyers, yes. Uh, <laughs> okay. Can I ask one question about this for you guys who are... are this may be a little bit of a stupid question but from an outsider, but like, to, to what extent do you, do you guys perceive that like... There's such an emphasis culturally on the cool kids are on offense and they're hackers and they do nifty things and break in, you know, from war games on forward. To what extent do you think a cultural shift to sort of focusing on how cool it is to be a defender could help rebalance the scales here? Is that just pie in the sky, soft cultural thinking, or is there something? There's something there, I mean, but it's like hard. It, it because yeah. offense is cooler. And we see the same trouble about building new versus maintaining old, right? Infrastructure is boring. The new thing is cool. So we see that kind of shift in, in a bunch of places. But I think that is something that is, is worth talking about. It's hard to make that shift because infrastructure actually is boring. Yeah, it's, it's, it's like trying to make heroes out of offensive linemen. Or, or I, I'd add to that, it's like making getting high grades in middle school cool. Uh, we're trying to shift something that's inherently uh, socially viewed as uh, cool versus not cool. Being the uh, studious kid is pretty hard to make cool. Now, there's perhaps some optimism in the corporate setting or the economic setting because we can use incentives to make it cool. If the defenders start getting paid a lot more money, suddenly, hey, it's cool to uh, make money, even if it's not cool to be a defender. So the incentive component is an important tool there. So let me, this is, I think this is also a little depressing. Bruce, there was a National Security Commission report, draft report, which is kind of nice. We get to read it before it's final, on artificial intelligence in defense. And then an article about just how AI machine learning is transforming law enforcement from having more data than you can actually use to something where the data is made sense of by data fusion in real time. Uh, a, and I guess my question is, I, 
what lessons did you draw from my juxtaposition of those two stories? Now, I read the first report and it was kind of not a lot there. I wasn't really impressed with it. I think what we know about AI is that it's really hard to predict AI. Things we think are easy end up being impossible. Things we think are impossible end up being easy. When I was a student, we were taught that Go would never be solved by an AI because it's computationally infeasible. Then like one year, Google says, oh yeah, we did that because we were bored. And, and, and we don't know how it affects the offense-defense balance. We know it changes things, but so many unknowns, so many discontinuities in what's possible. So it's interesting to read those reports. I really didn't think the draft one said anything useful. But, but I, you know, the, the fact that AIs are being used by law enforcement, which is really the same way being used by corporations to manage their huge mounds of data and get insights. Insights are kind of dumb now, but you come back in a year and, and who knows what's possible. They, they, you know, defeat the world's go champion on, on a whim and, and stuff like that's going to happen a lot. Gus, you get, you got, I, this is, this is, for some reason, this was my episode for thumb sucking pieces that I thought people might want to pontificate on. You got the one about the guy who told us we were in, in, in an attention economy in 1997 and that everybody was going to end up having their attention mined. And uh, they call him the Cassandra of the attention uh, economy because uh, nobody paid any attention, but he was right. Uh, I thought it was a moving article. I, I, I wasn't sure what to make of it. Yeah, so what, what I make of it is, wow, the New York Times uh, just discovered that there have been people saying for decades, hey, this might not all turn out all that well. I mean, you can go back to Asimov, the guy discussed in the article, Goldhaber, he went to Herbert Simon to get his idea for the attention economy, heal this all a pool. We, we can find this stuff sprinkled, sprinkled throughout history. And th this kind of goes back to David's question uh, about getting the incentives right, to making it cool to do this. People have understood there are these risks, and we've been talking about these risks for since before the internet, literally. But we still uh, charge uh, headfirst into these waters because it's the fun stuff to do. It's the interesting stuff to do. The incentives are there. We're finding patches of inefficiency that we can make more efficient with these technologies. But there are uh, flip sides to that. And technical debt has been sprinkled throughout uh, all of our discussions, not just today. It, it's fun. It's exciting to do uh, all this stuff, ignoring the warnings. And of course, there's a, a bit of meta irony in this discussion. Uh, Goldhaber is referred to as a, a, a Cassandra here, issuing these warnings and being ignored. Well, when we're in this attention economy, part of the reasons they're ignored is because the attention economy doesn't focus on them. So there, there, there's part of the mill that is grinding out the parts that it needs to be paying the most attention to. Well, because it, it, the only way that we would be atta paying attention to him is if he had sold out his principles and jumped in with both feet into the, uh, into the Twitterverse. Nobody's going to pay attention to him if he just stays home and occasionally writes a book. There, there's a reason we talk about Cassandra. Cassandra isn't a uh, modern day figure. Uh, this is thousands of years of, hey guys, this happens. Maybe uh, uh, there are going to be these predictions that uh, the prognosticators are right about and we're going to ignore. Woe to be them. Do you think that there is a, 
an equivalent. You know, I, my, my mother and my grandmother made me the cheapskate that I am today by making sure I understood the value of a nickel, a, and which then had some value. Uh, and I wonder if there isn't some way to say you need to teach kids the value of their attention, that there are people who just want it, and I, that you need to keep kind of a firm grip on it. Like, uh, you know, you're at the the carnival with, uh, with money in your back pocket. Every once in a while, you better check to make sure that uh, you're spending it right and nobody has come and lifted your wallet. Uh, I, and uh, I don't know what the best way to teach kids to be cautious about their attention is, but it's it's something we probably ought to be thinking more about. Yeah, it's, it's, of course, a constant discussion in this area about generational differences. I'm, I, I'm a big fan of the Pessimists Archive. Uh, you can find newspaper articles dating back to the 1800s about how technolo- new technologies, the bicycle, whatever, books, are going to cause terrible, terrible harms to the next generation. The kids will be all right is a uh, fair observation, so long as we leave uh, the world to them, generally. My, my curiosity, my why wonder about the Cassandra effect is, can we invest on it? I mean, there are smart investors always looking for contrarian investments. The economy is going to go this way, missing some big point. Can we monetize that? And going back to David's question and the Perloff article and book, is there a winning strategy to invest in defense today, knowing that those investing in offense are going to destroy themselves eventually and you just need to outlast them all? Or is that going to be a losing strategy because everyone's going to destroy themselves, including you? So how can you make these counter-cyclical investments? All right, so I will I will say that in terms of the kids will be all right that and and all of the years of predicting disaster I'm reminded of the fact that 125 years ago uh, Louis Brandeis said, "You know, mark my words, the thing that'll be the end of us is pictures, people taking pictures of me and without my permission." And do you know we are still fighting that Canada is fighting it today. Yeah. So maybe he had something maybe Maybe he was right, but sure are a lot more pictures than when he told us that we had to, uh, to stop this scourge. Okay. Hey, Stuart, uh, actually, can I get a quick last word? Yep. Today is the 25th birthday of the Telecommunications Act of 1996. Happy birthday. Happy birthday. All right. <laughs> yep. And it's time for another one, I'm sure. Okay. Uh, uh, David, I, I thought your piece on the SIGINT Annex was fascinating up to a point right i i i i was i was delighted to read if you need a non-narcotic sleep aid it's wonderful and very effective exactly but unfortunately too heavy it kind of compresses your chest when you fall asleep (laughs) right right Okay. No, it, it, <laughs> I see how this is going to go, but I, but I have to say it's a, it's a fair point. I, so the, why don't you tell us how you decided to write this and what the SIGINT Annex is? Yeah. I mean, I decided to write it because I thought it would be helpful to a very small set of super nerdy people who follow this, both within the government, including the executive branch and the legislative branch and, and a few outside of it. And principally as a kind of a reference document. I mean, it was really my effort to just catalog the best understanding of this thing that I could put together 
knowing that there are pieces of it that may appeal to various constituencies and audiences, but that the whole thing is much more likely to be valuable as something that sits on the shelf until an issue arises. And I partly did it just because I like doing super deep dives on these things. What this is, is the kind of regulatory framework for signals intelligence, collection, processing, querying, dissemination, and everything that is a couple of layers down from Executive Order 12333, which is the sort of presidential charter-level document for the whole intelligence community. So the SIGINT Annex is getting closer to the ground-level regulation that governs the whole U.S. SIGINT system which includes both NSA and various other elements of the military that do signals intelligence work. So it's an, it's an important document, but it's definitely not an easy document to get a hold so of. So one way of, of summing it up is this is the document that you would turn to to tell people, know our intelligence community and NSA is not out of control. It is thoroughly regulated in ways that are designed to protect the rights of people who don't work at NSA. It's thoroughly regulated, for sure. I mean, it's a very thorough, complicated document. It, it, I think, completely rebuts a claim that it's a free-for-all. Whether it's, you know, enough regulation, whether the rules are what they should be, that's, that's a point on which certainly reasonable minds can differ. But it's, it's non-trivial in its content. I mean, it does impose some, some limits and it does set up a very complicated scheme, largely outside the area of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act. That is, this this annex really regulates signals intelligence where Congress has knowingly left a statutory gap. And that's an important point that I think if you didn't understand, you would very quickly go down a rabbit trail of, of misery and, and, and suffering because this document doesn't overrule, it, it doesn't compete with FISA, it fills the spaces that FISA left. So it's NSA, in a sense, regulating itself, even though the law doesn't. And there are reasons why it would do that. So I, I, I am struck by the fact that this is far more detail and far more elaborate than I think pretty much anything the CIA has ever done for itself, and probably more elaborate even than the guidelines that the FBI is subject to, although that's a closer call. <laughs> yeah, well, so, I mean, I, a few years ago, I wrote a similar piece on the CIA's guidelines in this area. These are guidelines that are required to be issued and approved by the Attorney General under Executive Order 12333, and uh, every generation or so, they get around to revising them. A CIA's document is very complicated, but I think you're right as a regulatory matter, you know, focused on the human space as opposed to SIGINT, CIA's document is perhaps a little easier to understand. I think I also agree with you about the FBI. Its domestic operations guidelines, which is the core charter document signed by the Attorney General, are pretty short. The DIOG, the Domestic Investigations and Operations Guide, that's more of a phone book, and it is astonishing how much detail is contained in the dialogue. That's in part because, you know, agents are operating, FBI agents are operating domestically and in a law enforcement capacity as well as a security uh, capacity. So the, the thing I thought, the first thing I thought was fun about your uh, article was the history uh, or the 
uh, and maybe the prehistory of NSA. It's not really prehistory. It's it it, it uh, NSA is a merger of uh, um, the two big military SIGINT uh, um, uh, operations, Army and Navy. Um, uh, uh, but um, I thought I would just mention to you that. Uh, all of the focus in all of the official histories has been about the army navy disputes uh and i i'm gonna uh have somebody on the podcast shortly uh, uh jason fagone um who wrote the woman who smashed codes yeah, i don't know david I have, have you read yeah. that yet terrific book it is superb as a uh, as as a insight into how cryptology as they called it then and cryptanalysis got started in the united states and this is truly prehistory because it turns out that the the cryptologic power in the 30s uh in the united states government was the u.s coast guard which i might add is part of the department of homeland security today um and uh, uh they never got credit for it because they did much of their cryptologic work for, you guessed it, J. Edgar Hoover, who was never going to give credit to anybody except the FBI for pretty much anything. Uh, but there's a, there's a great story uh, in this book. Uh, we'll talk about it later. Uh, but it, it, it tells us that cryptology actually probably was bigger than just the military cryptanalytic efforts of World War II. Um, the OSS wanted to get into the game and everybody thought they were crazy and tried to keep them out. I, it, it, so there's a lot, and the FCC used to think their job was to go around finding spies who were broadcasting from the United States. That was, they, they had these little radio trucks that would look for spies and they took them down to Latin America on behalf of the FBI to look for spies. It was, there's a lot going on and that's not, um, yeah, you know, I, I agree. And I do want to say that the, the book that you mentioned is just terrific. Um, the history in this paper is just in service of understanding the SIGINT annex. I don't, uh, pretend to be an historian, nor did I attempt a, a comprehensive assessment here. It, it is interesting to me, though, that the, the sort of one area in which the Army and Navy could agree, and they fought like cats and dogs over SIGINT and control of SIGINT, um, but the one area where they were really very well united was in the need to exclude the FCC and other entities, including the OSS, uh, and to a lesser extent, the Bureau, from getting into the SIGINT game. And in a way, NSA owes its existence to a revolt of the civilians uh, in which the State Department and OSS got together uh, and or CIA at that oh, point. Oh, and said, well, you can't leave it yeah. with those guys. I, better there's somebody new that we might have a shot at than these Army Correct. Navy guys right. who so hate So Army us. and Navy fought uh, with uh, one another, like literally to the point of saying, okay, you guys do it on odd numbered days of the month and we'll do it on even numbered days of the month on the same targets, which is completely ridiculous and stupid. But state and CIA had been pushed out. And in the early 50s, they went to the president and they said, you need to have a, a, a commission study this, which was just their way of backdooring into the desired outcome, which was to open up uh, signals intelligence to national rather than just departmental, that is, that is civilian intelligence as opposed to just military. Um, and that ended up 
leading to the creation of NSA in the following year, 1952. And creates the, the attention that is still live inside NSA today, which is, are we producing a national intelligence about, uh, you know, uh, what the, um, uh, the new diplomatic offensive of the People's Republic of China in Kyrgyzstan is up yep. to? Or are we principally trying to figure out uh, uh, the uh, codes of militaries we might actually find ourselves yeah. fighting? They're both um, a combat support agency and a member of the yep. intelligence community, and they sort of wear that hybrid hat with pride. Uh, but it does lead to some tensions. And then the obviously the creation of Cyber Command complicated the picture, and you have ongoing debates, it seems, about whether to split you know, Cyber Command and NSA, and, and in that case, you might have a civilian rather than a three or four star general uh, or admiral running uh, NSA, so it would become more like the CIA. Um, and you have another hybrid question also, which is the question of offense, signals intelligence, and defense, uh, you know, what they used to call information assurance, they now call cybersecurity. So NSA's history, I think, informs an understanding of its current operations and the regulatory scheme in which it's operating um, and and the sort of strange uh, infighting that preceded its existence, I think, gives you a lens for understanding some of the from the challenges it's facing today. So the, the other historical event that is, you know, uh, seared into uh, the institutional memory of NSA is the uh, Pike and Church Committees yeah. and the uh, scandals of the 70s when NSA, which had not existed, had not been acknowledged as a practical matter, uh, uh, suddenly finds itself uh, in the spotlight um, over three or four activities, which at least in my theory, I, I know you may disagree, are basically the same kinds of things that we've been fighting about ever since, uh, uh, getting closer, getting farther from doing these things, but they are at the core of the debate about what we think maybe NSA should do or maybe yeah. not. Uh, uh, you want to you walk us through the, the Sure. The I mean, just to validate your first point, and I talk about this in the paper, I mean, NSA did not even publicly acknowledge its existence for the first five years that it was in effect. So not until 1957 did anyone even admit there was a thing. That's why people still refer to NSA as no such agency. And the uh, first public speech by a director of NSA, I think, think, was in 1979 when Bobby Ray Inman uh, gave a talk. So the secrecy... Yeah, with his back to the wall. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> exactly. It was, a, it was a challenging time. The... Um, the searing effect, I think, that you referenced is absolutely right. I mean, the... the let's just say for purposes of agreement now, the perceived abuse of Shamrock, Minaret, and uh, to a lesser extent, I think the drug uh, surveillance that they did uh, for the BNDD, the Bureau of Narcotics and Dangerous Drugs, um, back in those days, uh, really affected the culture at NSA. And, and I mean, I'm a government insider, so people might say, you know, they, they should take that with some skepticism. But even genuine outsider civil libertarians like Jeff Stone have found remarkable and have remarked on the cultural commitment to rule of law that is so, so powerful within NSA. I do think that some of the collection programs here, like Shamrock, which was basically getting a copy of every international telegram, that was the preferred communications technology of the day. 
Um, and Minaret, which involved watch listing for domestic political uh, targets, um, were very problematic at a minimum. I think were understood, particularly Minaret, to be problematic at the time they were done and at the time they were exposed in the 70s. Um, but they do certainly resonate with today's debates. I mean, Minaret's watch listing selection criteria to, you know, expanding to include domestic political operators um, didn't expand the circuits that NSA was monitoring. It just expanded what was being pulled out. And it's a lot like the debate we're having now, or it's at least somewhat analogous to the debate we're having now about querying, where you've got access to or have actually collected just a massive trove of data. And then the question is, how do you select out either from stored data or data that's moving through a monitored channel, uh, the desired communications and what should be the limits on that? So I do, although I'm not, I don't think I share your assessment of the legality of it all. Um, I, I will say I haven't totally gotten to the bottom of it. Um, I do agree with you that it's very much sort of resonates with debates we're having even now. Maybe I, I have inherited this. Uh, um, it turns out that uh, when the companies that were providing all of those international wires <clears throat> said, excuse me, the war is over. What the hell? This is illegal, isn't it? Uh, they got reassured by a couple of defense uh, uh, secretaries and attorneys general. And the last one they talked to who said, yeah, just shut up and deliver uh, was, uh, was Secretary Lewis Johnson, who is also the Johnson in Steptoe and Johnson. Aha, a bias. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I have I will, to confess. I will say this, just putting in, if I'm, I, I know this may be deeply wrong and hurtful to you, Stuart, but just if I may put in a plug for the Lawfare podcast. Um, a, 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 I love the Lawfare, <laughs> I love the lawfare I have, podcast, uh, except for the, the, the views. Right, right exactly. <laughs> so I have had a, an occasion recently to do a couple of historical podcasts, one with uh, the GCHQ uh, former historian, and then one more recently with the NSA current historian, Dave Hatch, on Project Venona. And um, so I commend those to everyone. I hope you'll all go and listen to them. Um, and in the Venona podcast with Dave Hatch, he talks a little bit and then stops himself uh, from talking any further about how Shamrock grew out of a World War II censorship program in which literally every international communication, a second copy was routed to, uh, to NSA. And it, it turns out that that program of automatic routing by Western Union and other carriers was very, very helpful in picking up Soviet diplomatic traffic, then at that time, the Soviets being our allies, uh, later things slightly changed because they didn't have their own communications infrastructure. So they were riding on, you know, U.S. providers uh, and NSA was getting a copy of everything. And once they were able to decrypt some of them, that turned out to be very, very valuable. It sounds like the WeChat right now <laughs> exactly. and TikTok as well. Yes. So, uh, all right. So, so uh, let's, uh, uh, people are listening to this, at least in theory, they they wanted to know something about what the annex said. Oh. So why don't we spend a little bit of time on what the annex actually tells us? And I, I thought the, the limitations on collection were a pretty good breakdown of uh, uh, what the annex yeah. does and I, you know it, looking it over is there's a lot of stuff about how not to target US yeah. persons you, you, the yes right? um, so the the annex you know has like seven big parts uh, one of which and maybe 
the, the first one to talk about is, uh, is the collection rules. And it, it limits the purposes of collection, uh, which is for foreign intelligence needs to support military operations or for sort of hostage rescue or um, captive operations where U.S. persons get held abroad by non-U.S. persons. Um, so they limit the purpose. And then there's probably five or six other important limits, one of which is a general rule against targeting U.S. persons or persons in the U.S., Another of which is saying that we should do targeted rather than bulk collection uh, and that we need to do some efforts to identify targets so we know what rule sets to apply. Um, another of which is to reduce incidental collection as much as possible. Another of which is an outright prohibition on reverse targeting, which is basically just fraudulent activity in which you pretend that Smith is your target when you're really trying to get information about Jones. Uh, another of which is a general rule against collecting domestic communications and and maybe the last of which is that when you use selection terms this is going back to the watch listing and the minaret style collection uh, which you're supposed to use whenever possible if those terms are likely to return u.s person communications you have to adopt defeat mechanisms to try to minimize that so you know it isn't a set of absolutely rigid requirements in certain cases it's more a, a set of practices or general uh, limitations um, but they are meaningful uh, for sure they change the way and, it's and done. don't yeah it's, it seems to me there's there's an argument here uh, uh, against imposing legal restrictions as opposed to the kinds of restrictions that are part of this, you know, um, self-restraint uh, rule. Because if, if, if somebody said, I want to pass a law that says no more collection than necessary and uh, targeted when practicable and minimize incidental collection, you would be worried that before you knew it, all of those terms would be defined by the uh, U.S. equivalent of Canada's <laughs> Privacy Commission. And we'd, we'd all wake up, or at least NSA would wake up and, and not be able to actually do SIGINT. So when they're saying we shouldn't do more collection than necessary, they understand that a lot of times a lot of collection is necessary, but that in principle, if you can do it with less, you should. Um, and so as long as they're making they're deciding what these rules mean for themselves, they're quite willing to articulate uh, rules that they would never accept as legal rules. You know, I mean, I think three comments on that, Stuart, I guess. First, it, it, these kinds of documents, these regulatory documents like the SIGIN Annex are just murderously difficult to write. And, you know, this one, the Annex, is an update for a document that was last substantially revised literally in 1988. Okay, so um, a long, long time ago. And it just, it takes a huge amount of effort to write these rules and to write them in a way that's clear. Um, Congress knew that when it enacted FISA in 1978, and it intentionally left this space unregulated by statute, essentially on the grounds that it's just too hard. And they, the Intelligence and Judiciary Committees, you know, cited with approval the, at that time, fairly early stage executive regulation that was taking shape in that area. Um, and, you know, today there is oversight uh, of the way in which NSA applies the SIGINT Annex. And in fact, the very tiny uh, audience f for this paper, I hope, includes, you know, sissy and hipsy staffers uh, who want to get, at, you know, sort of a, 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 an outsider's 
but a knowledgeable outsider, relatively knowledgeable outsider's perspective on how this SIGINT annex holds together and how it applies writ large. So it's, you know, I think it's very, very hard to write statutory rules for this space. It might not be impossible, but Congress has definitely held back from doing so. Um, yet at the same time, that doesn't mean it's a free-for-all. There are some mechanisms for oversight into this area. Yeah. Although I think you cut your audience in half when you referred to the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence. As I the know they Sissy. don't like that. Sorry, uh, guys. They don't like that. <laughs> <laughs> SSCI. Okay. So the, the, <laughs> the, the other um, topics, which we probably don't have trouble time to get into in detail, are actually, in some respects, a couple of them, maybe more 21st century than the collection limits. Uh, the processing and the, maybe the retention, maybe the dissemination, uh, those things are limitations that we've come to appreciate more uh, in the last 20 years than we did before. Them. You know, for sure. I think some of that is technological because back when collection involved paper or even to some extent magnetic tape or microfiche or something like that, you know, querying was to a much greater extent than today kind of a person looking at stuff and seeing, oh, there's Stuart Baker being mentioned, and oh, there's another mention of Stuart Baker, and oh, look, here's a third thing, and Stuart Baker's reported on, um, and, and then they might have to assess, you know, is it the same Stuart Baker? Um, today, the, the big thing that's different about this new SIGINT annex is the way in which it prescribes rules around queries of data, which now occur, you know, with the advent of digital technology using, you know, uh, those kinds of techniques. And so there's been a need uh, to develop more precise regulation around this. Um, that is a classic, you know, formula in which uh, mission expands first, operations expand first, and compliance architecture trails. That's true in the private sector, uh, which is, you know, why so many companies expand into overseas markets and then develop their Foreign Corrupt Practices Act compliance rules, which is wonderful for lawyers. Um, and I think, you know, NSA has, and the SIGINT uh, uh, collection system has also had to do the same. So the big thing on, on that end of, of the intelligence life cycle here is the new focus on querying that has been made possible by new technologies and it's been made more controversial we've seen legislation in some areas for example the fisa amendments act section 702 last time it was renewed congress imposed by law uh, a bunch of limits on queries some of that is reflected here uh, in the SIGINT annex itself. And, uh, you know, to be fair, NSA walked into that um, uh, fan uh, by saying, uh, hey, why don't we collect everything, all of the metadata of all the phone calls uh, in the United States, and don't worry, until we query it, it doesn't really belong to us. It, nobody's privacy has been invaded. Uh, and so by putting the focus on the query, which is perfectly sound as a technical matter, they uh, opened the door to saying, oh, so we can really regulate your queries in a quite a narrow and focused way. Oh, and by the way, collecting it was a violation of law, and we're going to prevent that too. Yeah, I mean, I, one of the interesting things about the whole bulk metadata 
a collection program is the way in which the regulation occurred because it started obviously with President Bush right after the 9-11 attacks. It was then years later in 04 and 06 brought under the auspices of the FISA court, which some people think, some courts think leaned in uh, in terms of interpreting in particular the word relevant uh, in the FISA statute to embrace all information <laughs> uh, being relevant uh, because it could then be queried um, and which sat in these giant data repositories uh, inside NSA and, and, as you say, was looked at by humans only if responsive to a query uh, with the oh, query. Only, only, only one might say when it became relevant. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, but, but, um, and the, the ultimate response when that was outed, uh, which took two years from 2013 to 15, was a, a statute to regulate the space called the USA Freedom Act, which tried to replicate a lot of the protocols that NSA had adopted over time and under the court's supervision internally, but with one gigantic difference. Uh, which was that the data were no longer held in one big database or you know whatever within NSA and instead was operated as a kind of federated database with all the uh, metadata being held by the various telephone company providers which then led to both a more complicated legal system and a more complicated engineering system for doing real-time iterative federated queries in which you would do the number and then get the numbers that are one hop out and two hops out, and which, just to sort of fast forward, ultimately just crashed and burned horribly. It failed utterly as a technical matter. It cost millions of dollars, um, and it just didn't work, which uh, means that it won't be renewed, um, and it has, in fact, sunset, um, and while other elements that sunset are likely to be revived, uh, that one isn't. Um, and so you just sort of can see the way in which technology and regulation play out over time, sometimes to good effect, sometimes to bad effect. So let me let me uh, give you the last question and a provocative one. Um, I think the story of the FISA Amendments Act and the reaction to that, it, 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 there's, there's two fundamental facts that I think will govern the future. One, everything that... Uh, was done from 2006 on was completely legal. All of it was fully authorized within the executive branch and ultimately by Congress. And nonetheless, it didn't do them any good when they stood in front of Congress with an unpopular program. And that raises for me the question whether this elaborate annex all of the commitment to the rule of law and the very aggressive enforcement of a whole set of rules, whether that was adaptive in 1978 and has become less likely to save NSA from the next scandal and therefore less adaptive for the future. Um, I'm going to disagree, Stuart. Um, I could quibble with a lot of what you said, but sort of the central disagreement is that I believe NSA uh, and the government generally enjoyed enormous benefits from having kept Congress fully and currently informed of its bulk collection metadata program and from having had the FISA court uh, approve it 
over and over and over again. I don't deny that it was very uncomfortable for government officials uh, who had to face Congress and public uh, scrutiny and outrage in the aftermath of the Snowden revelations. Uh, so I, I don't mean to minimize the the uncomfortableness of that, but I just think it would have been so much worse, so much worse, had you not had SSCI and HIPSI coming out very strongly in a bipartisan way at the time saying, yes, we were fully and currently informed. We knew all about this. This is, you know, as Diane Feinstein wrote in an op-ed, this is the most heavily regulated government program in the history of the Western world. Uh, it, it just, you know, there wasn't the same reaction to this that we saw in Church and Pike, a sense that the intelligence community has had gone completely out of bounds, off the rails, and was doing stuff that was just illegal. It was instead, uh, I think as the ACLU said, sort of a pox on all three branches of government. You know, you, you all approve this. Uh, we don't like it. And, you know, you never expect Washington, D.C. debates to be like models of legitimate, you know, policy uh, you know, policy choice. Uh, there's always finger pointing and yelling and screaming and pulling of hair and gnashing of teeth. But I, I think I think it would have just been much, much worse and much more frightening, frankly, had they not uh, engaged properly with the judicial and legislative branches uh, with respect to these programs. So it was bad, but it could have been way, way worse. All right. Well, David, I'll give you the last word on that. I uh, um, I really appreciated uh, the time you put into this and uh, the care you put into it. And uh, the next time I have a really detailed 12333 problem, uh, <laughs> uh, uh, I will be back mining uh, your detailed summary of the NSA SIGINT an annex uh, and your ability to popularize it, uh, which I guess is as close as we got to, to popularization here today is uh, a gift to the agency uh, and to the rule of law. So thanks very much for uh, for doing this. And thank you for having uh, me. I really appreciate it. it <laughs> it's it's been it's been fun. I, I and who would have ever expected the SIGIN annex to be fun? Uh, <laughs> all right. Uh, thanks to Bruce Schneier. Thanks to Gus Horwitz. Uh, I do want to uh, tell the audience a couple of things. Uh, first, uh, we are still thinking about the possibility of hiring somebody part time who can be a producer, an engineer, researcher or intern uh, for the podcast. Uh, so if you, uh, uh, we haven't decided to do that, but if you know somebody who might be interested, have them send their CV to cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com. Um, we're also, I, I promise to read uh, entertainingly abusive uh, uh, reviews on the air. This one's not abusive. Uh, so um, those of you who live for uh, uh, the guests who make fun of me uh, will not get much out of this, but Here's what Mac Jigger said. Uh, absolutely great podcast. This podcast is highly informative. The guests are always top notch and the host is not too shabby either. Well, yeah, that was a slight slam. Uh, even as a lefty from the old continent, it's incredibly hard not to enjoy Stuart's Euro bashing. Uh, anyhow, there's no shortage of opposing views, which is an absolute joy. If you care about the law, the cybers, tech reg and uh, privacy, this is the podcast to subscribe to. Five stars easily. Keep up the good work. Uh, and he makes a suggestion for a couple of guests. Uh, Eva Galperin from 
from the EFF, Michael Morrell, uh, former acting head of the CIA. Uh, uh, and I, I'll, I'll give both of them a call and see if we can get them on. And uh, in that case, Mac Jigger will have to give us his real name so that we can send him a pod, uh, Cyberlaw podcast mug. Thanks also to sound, uh, Weissman Sound Design for the music. This has been episode 348 of the Cyberlaw podcast brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Uh, if you want to comments or other uh, suggestions, send them to the same address, cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com. Uh, and join us again next week as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government.